0: Thank you, John, for that song. Um, that's going to relate very heavily to the sermon this morning um, in Psalm 22. Um, those of you who have been here for a while know that I I love the psalms. I'm, I'm drawn to the psalms. And every once in a while, I like to return back to the psalms to um, give a sermon progressively through the book. Um, I checked the last time that I taught on a psalm, and I, I should be done teaching to the psalms in like 20 years at this pace. Um, But the Psalms are just such a a rich resource of lessons. Uh, They're quoted more in the New Testament than any other book of the Bible. And if you include very direct allusions to the Psalms, it would be an even greater margin of quotations far beyond even a book like Isaiah. Um, The Psalms just have, again, such a rich resource of not only lessons in who God is, who we need to be before him, but lessons, of, in, lessons that are meant to enrich our faith and how in different situations our faith can be enriched and how we can um, still gain victory through our faith to overcome the world. This is one of the more famous psalms. Um, in Matthew and Mark, this psalm is quoted by Jesus as the only words recorded, at least in Matthew and in Mark, it's the only words recorded by Jesus when he was on the cross. Uh, John and Luke record him saying more things like, into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished, I thirst, etc. But at least in Matthew and Mark, the only things that are recorded that Jesus said on the cross is Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, verse 1. That may make you think that this psalm, as it's quoted, is a very hopeless psalm. Um, And I didn't read the whole psalm in the scripture reading, but there's a turning point in verse 21 to 22. This is actually a a psalm that is overflowing with hope that not only has a section where the psalmist does actually find hope in God, but where the psalmist is, in a way that is very mysterious, is overwhelmingly delivered, and from verse 22 through 31 just speaks again very vividly, very overwhelmingly of God's triumphant deliverance and this new position that he's put in because of this deliverance. So it, it again, it's it's a very interesting psalm with, with a side that, if you're not familiar with the psalm, a side that maybe you wouldn't expect uh, to be there. But with this psalm, David, I think, is poetically describing some circumstance that he did face, where David is, again, poetically using images that relate to something he endured. But this has kind of been a helpful way to say it that's stuck with me. The way that David poetically describes his circumstance, they prophetically describe what Jesus literally endured. So these poetic images in the psalm that again, I think David wrote because it does relate to him, they prophetically become something that Jesus literally did endure. Uh, Not only literally, but If you press the language, it can't relate to David. Um, We'll see this later in the sermon, but verse 27, because of whatever happens here, God's dominion extends over all the nations, all peoples for all time, and that never happened in David's lifetime, right? So if you really press the language, it couldn't have been David, but with Jesus, not only is it literally fulfilled even beyond the suffering it surpasses it. So with David, you kind of have to lower the language to fully apply it to him, whereas with Jesus, you actually have to raise the language and meet the language above where it goes. Um, Again, it's a very amazing psalm in that regard. There's many things in the psalm that are said in the present tense. Another thing that makes this psalm very interesting is in the book of Psalms. This is the first psalm that gives so many details that are spoken in the present involving circumstance and suffering. There's been other psalms so far before Psalm 22 where the psalmist is suffering. He's suffering for a long time and is desperately, urgently seeking God to deliver him and rescue him. But there's not yet been a psalm that goes into as much detail as Psalm 22 and doesn't speak in detail in a present tense. So with that, not only are we kind of in this psalm entering into David's body, thinking his thoughts and experiencing his experiences, what makes it more valuable th- than that, it's almost as if we are entering Jesus' body as he's crucified. We're seeing what he sees from his perspective. We're experiencing what he experienced and we're getting to hear his thoughts as he's being crucified, which again gives us such a valuable perspective of not only Jesus and what he endured, but being, being able to relate to that and understand that on a deeper level. Um, and In this psalm, I think we find the role of Israel's king, ultimately. You know, one of the main roles of Israel's king was to fight the Lord's battles, to conquer, to give victory, but also to rule with justice and righteousness in ways that especially would benefit the afflicted, the lowly, those who would be oppressed. The last two psalms have been psalms of very loud and exuberant proclamation of God's victory and assurance in God's victory. And I think with the psalms, there's oftentimes, even if we can't always see it, the psalms are not just a randomized assortment of things that have been strewn together. And some psalms make it more evident that there is a progression from psalm to psalm. Sometimes it's harder to see. But look at Psalm 20, verse 1. This is by David. All these psalms are by David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, may name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Look at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day we call. 21 is a very similar psalm that continues on this thought. O Lord, in your strength the King will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. In verse 1. Verse 2 You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you have met him with the blessings of good to things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. 7 through uh, 11 talks about how God's enemies will not succeed. Look at verse 11. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. You will make them turn, You for you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstring at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing, we will sing and praise your power. So it's like Psalm 22 takes these victorious anthems of the past two psalms and then pushes it to an unexpected limit. It's almost like, okay, the psalmist has been expressing this great assurance in God's victory. God has delivered in the past. He knows that God has been faithful and that God conquers, that it's not dependent on weapons, physical weapons of warfare, but that God's strength will always be proclaimed and exalted. And then you get Psalm 22. And what about now? Are these anthems of God's victory and strength and power and, and victory? Are these anthems able able to go the length of circumstance we find the psalmist in here? So Psalm 22. Again, the psalm is neatly structured. One through twenty one. Through 21. I kind of see it as overwhelming defeat. At least that's how it seems. And then there's a very clear transition in verse 22 through 31. It's overwhelming victory. So 1 through 21, overwhelming defeat. At least that's how it appears. 22 through the end is overwhelming victory coming out of this defeat. I'll read 1 and 2 as we get into the psalm here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. So what does he mean, you have forsaken me? So I am not of the opinion that God spiritually separated himself from Jesus on the cross, and I don't think that's what David even believed here. In fact, if you remember verse 24 from the scripture reading, verse 24, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. Here's what I think is what the psalmist is expressing. The psalmist does not think God has spiritually separated himself from him, but he does know something. And I think sometimes having perfect assurance that God does love me, God is all-powerful, God does care about what's happening to me, God is able to respond to me, He, he is able to change my circumstance Sometimes that that faith can present its own array of unique problems. So the psalmist, and I, and I say the psalmist because I think it's more than David. You know, it's Jesus, but I think there's even ways we can associate with this. The psalmist knows that God has made a decision. That this isn't just happenstance. This isn't just God ignoring the situation. God has deliberately decided to give this psalmist into the hands of his enemies. God has deliberately chosen to do that. And the psalmist knows that God has chosen to strip him of all strength, to be able to fight back, resist, or even endure this beyond what seems to be the moment that he makes one final cry in the psalm, and then that's it. God has chosen to do that. God God is responsible for this, and God is choosing not to rescue him. So verse 2, when he says, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, I have no rest. And also verse 1, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning, um, again, I think what he's poetically saying is he's crying out to God and God is, again, choosing to distance himself. You know, God, God sees the psalmist situation. The psalmist is urgently asking God and begging God, rescue me. And God is deciding that's not what I'm going to do right now. I am not going to listen to this right now. And the psalmist knows, and I think he's correct, God has thrown him into the hands of his enemies. And he, the psalmist is very overwhelmed. And just to further kind of heighten, I think, the value of what we're going to see in the next verses, I want to read this out of order a little bit. Let's go to verse 12 through 18, and I just want to emphasize again just how dire the circumstances, and I think that will help us get a lot more value out of some of the things that are said immediately after what we read. So 12 through 18, again, notice the present tense, not the past tense. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's the situation. He's abandoned. Nobody's sticking up for him. Nobody's fighting with him. Nobody's coming to his defense. He's all alone. He's surrounded. So multiple times he's emphasized that there is a group of very powerful, ruthless, violent people like bulls and dogs and lions that are just ravenously coming at him and consuming him. And he's exhausted. So notice in verse 14, he's poured out like water. He has, he has no strength. He talks about how all of his bones bones are out of joint. He's, he's exhausted. He has no energy. He's used everything that he has. But you notice in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. So again, this is where things go from poetic to prophetic. I think with David, what he's poetically saying it's like he's been captured to the point where they have him pinned down like an animal. You know, kind of like when you shoot a deer, it collapses on the ground, and I've seen p- people p- take pictures of the deer where it's still alive, it's lifting its head, it's looking at the camera, and they're smiling with it. But I mean, the deer's as good as dead, right? It's already, it's already been captured, it's already been wounded. What David is saying poetically, I think, they've captured me, they've pinned me down, I'm as good as dead. And then, obviously, Jesus was physically crucified. But then, in verse 18, they divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Again, poetic to prophetic. What I think David is poetically saying is he is so thoroughly defeated. It's like they're taking the spoils of the victory from him already. They've taken his clothing off of him. It's like they're already victorious. They're already celebrating. It's, the battle's over to his enemy's perspective. Think about how that relates to Jesus. When he died on the cross, the battle's over. It's done. He's defeated. They cast lots for his clothing. The spoil is already being taken, again, from poetic to prophetic. Jesus's garments were literally taken away because it literally did seem like, again, he was overwhelmingly defeated. You know, this isn't like, well, maybe there's a chance, you know, that somehow this is going to work out. No chance. And yet, in this circumstance, David and, more perfectly, Jesus, when it seems like there's no reason to hope anymore, still finds ways to assure himself in God that God is still acting faithfully and is going to deliver him. And I think when we understand the circumstance, the hope, becomes more amazing. Let's go back to verses 3 through 5. So this is after talking about how God is, again, he knows God is throwing him into the hands of his enemies. Verse 3, Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist here doubles down on his trust in who God is and what he's done for his people. What is he saying when he's saying, yet you are holy? He's saying that God is not defined by the nature of his circumstances. You know, holiness, it simply means set apart. But God is so set apart. You know, he is not defined by my circumstances around me and how it may seem to be speaking of God. It seems like God has thrown me into the hands of my enemies, but God is holy. That does not define who he is or what he's going to do, right? God is also not defined by our emotions, and that's something that is very reassuring and very comforting. The psalmist is completely overwhelmed, completely spent. He has nothing left. It seems completely hopeless, but you know what? God is not defined by my emotional condition or my exhaustion, God is defined by his word. God is defined by what he's done. God is defined by his faithfulness to the things that he's promised and done for his people in the past. So verse three again, "O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Just looking forward a little bit. Notice in verse two, 22, rather, 22, second part of the verse. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Um, If you notice down in verse let's see oh I missed it uh, there it is verse 26 the afflicted will eat and be satisfied those who seek him will praise the Lord. When the psalmist is saying you're enthroned upon the praises of Israel why do they praise God? Because God has a habit of rescuing his people. The first time God is praised by Israel, is Exodus chapter 15, when God delivered his nation from Egyptian bondage and closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians as they pursued them. God is enthroned on praise by his people because he has a habit of always meeting the expectation of his promises. God always delivers his people. Therefore, he's enthroned with praise by them. So the psalmist, in the first part of the psalm, doesn't necessarily praise God. It doesn't seem he has the emotional capacity to do that, but he still is recognizing, but God, you are worthy to be praised even still, and you are praised by your people. And verse 4 and 5, he looks to the past. Do you remember when Israel got to the Red Sea, what happened to them initially? Did it look like God was leading them into a hopeful situation when they arrived at the Red Sea? You remember that God deliberately led them to an area where to the Egyptians it would look like they had reached a dead end and then God said turn around (laughs) because to the Egyptians it would look like they were lost confused cornered trapped and yet what was God planning and you remember the people they were distressed they thought well why did we just die in Egypt if you're going to bring us out here to die in the wilderness did God bring them out there to die now think the psalmist is overwhelmed He's trying to reassure himself that God is faithful. God is still God. God is still enthroned on the praises of his people. Can you see why remembering the Exodus and the Red Sea would be reassuring for him? Because God was planning deliverance at a time where temporarily things looked overwhelmingly hopeless. When they looked cornered, when defeat seemed absolutely assured, when they were going to be powerless to fight back. I can see why that would be reassuring for this, from the psalmist. He draws greater trust in God from who he is and what he's done. Verses six through eight, but I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So he's weaving together God and who he is and the tension that exists between that reality and reconciling the tension between that reality and the reality of what's presently happening. So verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is quoted uh, verbatim, actually, by Jesus' enemies, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Jewish elders, Matthew 27, forty-one through 43. They quote this taunting Jesus, ironically, as he's on the cross, the very thing that David said his enemies were saying when he seemed to be completely defeated um so again his trust in god to everyone else looks like a joke it is something that they're using to taunt him and to domineer him and to even oppress him even further and while to everybody else's perspective his faith in god looks like a joke look again at how the psalmist weaves together the tension between the experiential reality the temporal reality and who god is verse nine yet You are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So again, he anchors himself further in God. And I think there's some very deliberate connections happening here with this circumstance and what he's uh, putting his attention on. Why would remembering his birth be reassuring to his circumstances. Does God abandon the works that he finishes? Especially in relation to people. And, and mind you, David is not just some common person, not some Gentile person. This is someone very special to God. God has made very specific, very critical promises to David. God began this work from the very beginning. And so is God just all of a sudden going to abandon it? No. No. Could David defend himself when he was a baby? You know, did he have people around him to, you know, stand up for him? No, it's it's a time when he was completely helpless, where he was entirely dependent on God to care for him, right? And so even though his mother was obviously involved, he says, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So at a time when he was completely helpless, completely dependent, God was there. And it's almost like he's returning back to that condition again. God... I am helpless. I am completely dependent. All I can do is, like when I was born, is trust that you're going to provide, that you're not going to abandon me, right? And so again, I'm not going to reread 12 through 18, but he brings attention back again to just how shockingly escalated the situation is. You know, this isn't like a battle is raging or even going on for a while. It's, it seems like it's past the point Of any return. There seems to be no purpose anymore of crying out for help. Before we move on too much further, um, there was something that I I did want to bring up here with 12 through 18. David was a man of war, wasn't he? Wasn't he someone who defeated a giant? Didn't he fight many grand battles and have consistent victory over his enemies? And wasn't he feared among the nations? But was there someone that David, with all his power, his history of victory, was there someone or even some people David would refuse to fight back against? Saul. David never fought back against Saul. And you can correct me on this, but I don't think David ever participated in a battle against Israel. There are many civil wars that happened in in David's day, um, even his men. But I can't recall a time when I had been thinking about this, when David participated in those battles with Saul's men. After Saul died, Saul's men and David's men would fight. When Absalom, David's own son, rose up against him, again, David's men and Absalom and his men, they fought together. David did not participate in that fight. David never participated in a civil war against his own people. So I think the mystery of what's happening here, this is God's people. Just like in Jesus' death, was it the Gentiles who had no concept of God who were besieging him and surrounding him? It, It was his own people, the people who should have been loyal to him, the people that Jesus, he would do nothing against them. And they used that as a tool against him, just as Saul used David's loyalty as a tool to oppress him, right? So then 19 through 21, but you, O Lord, be not far off. So again, David isn't saying, God, you've hopelessly forsaken me. He's saying, God, you're all I've got. I know you've chosen to let this happen. You've thrown me into the hands of my enemies. You've stripped me of strength, but you're all I have, and I'm counting on that. Oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. So I would say that this is like his final appeal. You know, I kind of imagine it's like he's sinking into death. He's got one final moment to say something, and this is it. If God does nothing, then this is the end of the story. In verse 21, he's in the lion's mouth. Again, it's, it's not as if the battle's been raging. It's, it's over. The second part of verse 21 is worded more clearly in other translations, though. The New American Standard says, From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. The word, the word for answer, not to get too te- technical, I don't know Hebrew, whatever, but this is important that the word for answer is a perfect verb, meaning he's not asking God to answer. He is saying that God has answered. He's saying it's been done. And that is the transition to verse 22. He's been crying out to God at the end of verse 21, God has answered. Again, not a question, but a statement. It's been done. And that leads us to the glory and the hope of victory, the other side of Psalm 22 that may be surprising. So something happens. In the Psalm, it's a mystery. What happened? How did he get out of this? You know, he's surrounded by evildoers. He's he's pinned down and his clothes are being ripped off his body as a trophy. I mean, it's it's past the point of any return. He's in the lion's mouth. Something happened. We don't know what happened. The point is, God did it. The how doesn't matter. The how is a mystery. God did it. That's the point. And it's, it's not just that God delivered the psalmist. What makes the psalm amazing, he changed everything, everywhere, Forever. And this is where we get into a very clear connection to the gospel and not David anymore. What changed when Jesus rose from the dead? Was it just Jesus's own personal condition? Was it just his closest companions being comforted that it turns out he's alive? Everything changed everywhere forever when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what the psalm is going to teach us. 22 through 26, and I just encourage you, take this in. This this psalm takes such a shocking turn. It can be difficult to even grasp just how big the turn is. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So again, in summarizing the ideas here, how does this happen? What what, what does this mean? Again, I think to the Old Testament person, this would have been a great mystery. Is he in the midst of his enemies anymore? He's in an entirely new environment, in a completely new role. And verse 25 hints at this, I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. We'll see a connection in Hebrews that'll make this more, more clear. He's in a new environment. He has a new work, a new role. And he's surrounded now by a completely different group of people. These are no longer enemies. Now it's Brethren and it's God's people who are surrounding him, and he is encouraging them bombastically to praise and glorify and honor God for what he's done. Verse 22 is quoted in Hebrews 2, verse 12, and if you're able to just turn there really quick, I'll make some general observations. Um, but Hebrews 2, really 10 through 18, particularly just the section there, is saying that Jesus embraced the grittiest and darkest realities of our humanity and the reality of what we have to deal with because of sin. Jesus embraced the darkest and fullest reality of those things so that in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, and that is the suffering, dealing with all of the darkness and hopelessness of death so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And again, this is saying that Jesus, supported by, notice verse 12, the quotation from Psalm 22, that this suffering qualified Jesus to take on the role of a high priest, both merciful and faithful, And I think the idea, going back to Psalm 22, a critical statement in verse 26, let your heart live forever. Remember in Galatians 6, it said, we should not grow weary or lose heart. The psalmist has been equipped to give inexhaustible hope forever. It doesn't matter the direness of your circumstance. The psalmist experienced it. He experienced firsthand that God will deliver even when things seem to be at their most bleak, when they're at their darkest, when things seem to be beyond hope of any repair or redemption. The psalmist knows firsthand that God still will not fail. And the psalmist is given resources to also equip others to put their trust in God in a way that is even superior to what even he has. And so those who are surrounding him are actually given more reason to hope. Look at Romans 5. I think this this is a really critical connection to the latter half of Psalm 22, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 And again with this idea of let your heart live forever and how we are given an inexhaustible hope not because of David but because of Jesus who prophetically took on the literal and surpassed the literal of what we read in Psalm 22. Romans 5. Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, exult is kind of an interesting word, but I think, fittingly, you could replace that with praise. We praise God because of this hope, this hope of glory that God has given us. Verse 3, not only this, but we also exult, or we give God praise in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, I don't have this on the board, but look at, at least in the New American Standard, the first word of verse 6, for, which is to say, because of. So why can all this be said? Because while we were still helpless, as the psalmist was helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are given inexhaustible hope because now we have absolute assurance through Jesus. God's love never fails. Everything can be said against us. Everything can seem to be going wrong. Everything can seem to be broken beyond any remedy or any hope of ever being repaired again. We know for a certainty with absolute assurance because of Jesus enduring the cross God's promises and his love, they never fail. Back to Psalm 22. Verse 27 through 31, the psalm just erupts. You know, it's, it's like a volcanic explosion starting in verse 22 where everything just begins erupting and it just continues to expand and grow. And again, just how things progress is very shocking. And so verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. And mind you, he's saying because of this. Verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow down before him, will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity, and that is like an offspring or a seed, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. So again, this is where the psalmist goes far beyond David. Because of this, God's kingdom is established, not just over Israel, This isn't just a restoration of the boundaries of the Jewish empire. Somehow, this establishes God's rule and kingdom over the ends of the earth. You notice in verse 27, all the ends of the earth, or remember. Every nation, every culture, every class of person, and every generation. Every single person in any part of the world is going to be forever impacted by whatever this psalm is talking about. And I think when we see the book of Acts and the progression of the gospel, when we look at ourselves and where we are nearly 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're on the corner of the world compared to physical Jerusalem and Israel. We're on the other side of the planet. But because of this, all nations, all cultures, every class of persons, through every generation, forever and ever, for all time. Somehow, in verse 27, this would fulfill the promises to Abraham. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God said it would be through Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. That didn't happen through the period of the Canaan conquest in Joshua's day. It didn't happen in the time of David, with all his righteousness and justice and faith. It didn't happen in Solomon's day. It didn't happen when they came back from captivity. Something happened here that through this suffering, these promises left unfulfilled to Abraham would be overwhelmingly and very perfectly fulfilled forever. And in verse 31, when he says, it will be told to a people to be born that he has performed it, You'll notice in the New American Standard, it is in italics. It's inserted by the translators. So it's literally that he's performed. But I think that it is very important. What has he performed? It. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross in John? Some of his last words were, It is finished. What is it? everything it is everything in verse 31 he's done everything nothing left undone that it is the same it in john when jesus with his last breath it is finished it is all done we cannot be saved until we learn to value that it of what God has accomplished. That Jesus immersed himself into a circumstance of horror so overwhelming, so grisly and dark. I can't imagine. I don't think Jesus quoted Psalm 22 just to point us to the psalm and say, hey, that's me. I believe that God in all his glory and being so took on the horrors of our humanity that he spoke those words with a greater sense of truth and honesty than David even could comprehend. When I imagine Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, did the people around him understand what he said? They said, oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Not to insert too much of my own thinking, but I imagine that Jesus spoke with a quivering voice. He spoke in horror in desperation, in exhaustion, that he wasn't speaking clearly, he wasn't enunciating things in a way that was obvious, but he spoke, I imagine, with great trembling. And that Jesus took on the darkest, most horrible aspects of our reality, and the reality of sin and what we deal with in this broken world, that God in his glory pursued those things, not that they just happened to him, But that for thousands of years, God was setting up a suffering that would push Jesus in his perfection to the inexhaustible limit of what could be endured even for Jesus in his perfection. And he experienced those things so that we could be rescued from them and that we could be taken out of that reality and brought into the reality of God's salvation it will be told that he's performed it. May God help us to stand in awe and praise him for what he's done. That's the lesson for this morning. I hope that this has helped you invest more value into Psalm 22. Again, I think the Psalms are just such a treasure house of lessons that deepen our ability to appreciate who God is, what he's done, and who Jesus made himself to be when he embraced our humanity. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.